Hello, this is Shirley Comer, and this is our lecture for the eyes and ears. This slide shows the uh, picture of the external eye structures. Uh, one of the things that I'd like to point out on here is that, uh, number one, the conjunctiva is actually a clear film that covers the external eye and the undersides of the eyelids. So uh, when you read somewhere, I think your book tells you that the conjunctiva can appear pink. Uh, if that is the case, then someone actually has conjunctivitis. Um, the conjunctiva themselves should be clear. Also note that the pupils are just basically a hole that uh, is surrounded by the iris, which is the muscle. The iris is the one that actually contracts or dilates. Uh, to make the hole either larger or smaller. When you look directly through the hole, you see what's on our next slide, which is the retina. When you look through the, the pupil, you're looking at the back of the eye where the optic disc and the, uh, where the optic nerve and the blood vessels enter in the back. To begin our assessment, usually start with a Snellen chart assessment. Snellen charts are those um, familiar eye assessment charts that have the big E at the top. There are some variations on those. The eye chart needs to be positioned 20 feet away. That is absolutely crucial. And the person, we're doing a screening uh, exam here, so we want to ask them to leave their glasses or contacts on if they do wear them. There's no squinting or leaning allowed. They have to stand at 20 feet and not squint or lean in. You ask the patient to read the smallest line that they're able to. So you don't have them start with E and read all the way down the chart because that takes quite a while. You just ask them to read you the smallest line they can. And they should be able to do it uh, with both eyes together and then cover each eye independently and check for the visual acuity in each eye. Your results are read as a fraction. Uh, normal vision, as most of you know, is usually considered to be 20-20. The 20 uh, in the numerator of that fraction stands for the number of feet the person is standing away from the chart. So that's why those 20 feet are crucial. The denominator in that fraction, the other 20, stands for the distance at which a normal eye could read that line. So what they've done is they've decided to nominate a fictional normal person with normal vision. And that normal person at 20 feet should be able to read that line. So for example, if you get a, a reading of 2040 on your patient, that means that at 20 feet, your patient reads what a normal person with a normal vision could read at 40 feet meaning that that fictional person with normal vision could stand twice as far away from the chart and still read that line. So your person's vision is less than or worse than the fictional normal vision patient. Conversely, if your patient is 2010, that means that at 20 feet, your client can read what the fictional normal vision person can read at 10 feet, so your person can be twice as far away from the chart and still read the line that a normal person needs to read at 10. So his vision would be better than 2020. Um, if you uh, 
get a reading greater than 2030 from your patient, you need to refer them for uh, a thorough exam from an ophthalmologist or an optometrist. This next slide shows you a picture of a Snellen chart. You'll see the E is, is uh, commonly at the top. Sometimes these charts take the form of, uh, they call them illiterate charts where it's a shape and the person can uh, will tell you if the shape is up, down, side, uh, or po pointing up, down, or to either side um, in case they don't read English or they don't read um, letters. Sometimes there'll be pictures, especially if it's for a child. There may be pictures on here. Uh, you'll note that in between six, line 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, there's a green and a red line. There's two functions. Um, first off is that it separates out the two normals. Uh, for fortunately, on this picture example that I could find for you, they don't have the uh, eye acuities next to the numbers. Normally, what you'll see is next to the number, the eye acuity. For example, the E is a 2200. Uh, between uh, line 7 and 8, 7 is 2030 and 8 is 2020. So in between those two lines, you know that that's considered normal vision. Anything with outside of those uh, is considered abnormal vision. Also, the red, red and green lines can be used to assess the person for color blindness. Red-green color blindness is the most common, and so you can ask them what color those lines are. Unfortunately, not every chart has colored lines, uh, like the example that's shown here. Um, there are other charts that are available, some we just talked about. There are the color blindness charts so that I'll show you an example of in a second. There are depth perception charts that use uh, two images superimposed on top of each other. Usually you're looking at them through a, an eye viewer of some sort. Uh, and then there's uh, the presbyopia. Presbyopia is the uh, correct name for that phenomenon that happens to you around 40 where you have trouble reading text that's close to your face, even if you were had nearsightedness in the past and would result in bifocals. So there are small cards, the Rosenblum card, that you can use, that you use about 18 inches away from the face to read, which does check for presbyopia. This is a traditional way, this slide here is a traditional way of testing for color blindness. There will be images. Uh, this green image has a has the red-pink um, 35 number embedded in it. Someone with red, red, uh, green color blindness would not be able to see this. There are other types of color blindness, um, including black brown, uh, red green, uh, yellow red, and so forth. Red green being the most common. Next, you want to check your uh, patient's visual fields, and visual fields are tested by confrontation. Make sure that you memorize that line. Visual fields are tested by confrontation. In other words, by standing directly in front of the patient and testing his vision fields against your vision fields, you are testing it by confrontation. So what you want to do, there's a couple different ways to do this. The way your book tells you to do it is to stand in front of your patient about two feet away from them, 18 inches to two feet away. Um, have them look directly at your eyes and you look directly at theirs. You the first way to do this is to take your fingers or an object and place it behind their head and move it slowly around the head while they're looking at you and not at the object. Uh, about uh, an inch to two inches away from their head. 
um, they tell you to imagine there's a fishbowl on top of their head and you're skimming the outside of the fishbowl. They should be able to see the object at about 180 degrees, which is basically at the shoulder. So here you're testing their peripheral vision. Another way is to have them cover one eye and you cover that sa the same eye um, but with the opposite hand. So for example, if they cover their right eye with their right hand, you would cover your right eye with your left hand. Then you would take your right hand with an object in it and stick it straight out with both you and the patient looking directly into each other's eyes. You would move the object in towards you and ask him to tell you when he could see it. He should be able to see your uh, your object at the same time you do. So you are testing his visual fields against your visual fields. You should test uh, in all six fields, up, down, the sides, and then the transverse oblique angles. The next thing you want to test your patient for is extraocular eye movements. Uh, and to test extraocular eye movements, you use the six cardinal positions of gaze. Make sure to memorize that. Extraocular eye movements are tested by using the six cardinal positions of gaze. And what you do is, again, you stand directly in front of the patient. You use either uh, an object like a pen, a pencil, a pen light, or your finger. You hold it about 12 inches away from the patient and ask the patient to follow your finger or your object as you move it through the six cardinal positions of gaze. The six cardinal positions of gaze are um, d shown in the next slide, but I want you to note very carefully that they do not include up and down. Up and down are not part of the six cardinal positions of gaze. You can include up and down if you'd like to, but just realize that they're not the six cardinal positions of gaze. You want to observe the eyes as they move fluid, fluidly through each one of the movements. Um, and you want to look for something called nystagmus. Nystagmus is an oscillation or a jerking motion of the eye, uh, eyeballs, the orb, uh, the eyeball globe that um, should not happen except in an extreme lateral gaze. This slide shows the six cardinal positions of gaze. You see what they are is uh, straight in toward the eye or toward the nose, straight out toward the ear, obliquely up in both directions, and obliquely down in both directions. Up and down are not included in those six cardinal positions of gaze. You also want to inspect the external structures of the eye. You want to look at the general function. Do both eye lids close equally, uh, symmetrically, uh, and in sync? Are the eyebrows symmetrical? Are the eyelids and lashes symmetrical? Is there drooping, any lid lag, any periorbital edema, any discharge, lesions, or any bulging noted in any of the external structures? You would check the eyeballs. They should have, um, they should be a white or in some darker skinned folks, they may be a yellowish color. Uh, and there may also be some brownish patches on the whites of the sclera for the for darker skinned individuals. They should be smooth. Exophthalmus is a condition where the eyeballs seem to be poking out of the head. It's usually associated with hyperthyroidism. Obviously, that should not be uh, that should not be present. You want to assess the conjunctiva, which again should be clear. 
and the sclera, which should be white. You want to look for any blood vessels in either of these structures. Um, they should normally be clear, although you may see some uh, blood vessels on the sclera. And uh, African Americans may have these black uh, macule type uh, discolorations on the sclera, which can be considered uh, an, an abnormal, or I'm sorry, an, a normal finding, normal variation. Also in the eyes, you do want to check the cornea and the lens. To look for the cornea and the lens, you shine a light, usually a pen light, from the side of the eye and look for the cornea and lens as they float on top of the, um, the sclera. A cataract is an opacity of the lens, um, although, and that is an abnormal finding. However, it is reasonably uh, common to find something called an arcus senilis in an older person. This is a white line that forms on, forms on top of the lens. It's actually a cholesterol deposit, um, and it is, it is a normal variation for, for an older individual. Uh, you want to check the cornea for any abrasions. Uh, you may see ridges or reflected problems in reflecting light. Um, if you, if uh, necessary, you can stain the eye with a yellow stain uh, to to inspect the cornea if there are any types of corneal abrasions that are suspected. You want to inspect the iris in the pupil. The iris should be round. It's a colored, pigmented muscle, um, so its shape should be symmetrical. Um, however, if your client has had cataract surgery with lens implants, the round shape may be distorted and it may have an irregular shape. Uh, the pupils, again, should be round and they should, uh, the size and reaction should be symmetrical. If there is unequal pupil size and reaction, there may be a neurological problem. Pupils, that, uh, pupils may not react if your client is using any glaucoma medications or has had lens implants. Glaucoma medications generally cause the um, pupils to dilate and um, they may not react briskly or at all to light uh, as a result of the influence of those um, eye drops. You want to check the pupillary light reflex. What you do is darken the room ask the patient to gaze into the distance to dilate their pupils and then shine a light on the eye um, it, uh, over the patient's forehead and you should note that there is uh, a change in the pupil size there should be a concentric change meaning that both sides should ch uh, change at the same time um, even if you're just shining the light in the one eye the other eye should also change so if you're shining a pen light into the right eye the left pupil should also constrict at the same uh, rate and size as the right pupil. You also want to note where the um, spot of light from the uh, pen light is, is, is falling on the eyes. It should fall in the same place on both eyes. If it does not, it may be an indication that there is some strabismus or um, which is commonly called crossing of the eyes or there might be some lag time in the movement of the eyes and the extraocular eye movements. You want to record uh, this as a, as a Perla response with the Ebel's round uh, reactive to light and accommodation. Now accommodation is a term that I want to point out specifically here because many uh, healthcare providers do not actually understand what accommodation is. Accommodation is not a reaction in the pupil size in response to light. It is a reaction in the pupil size, uh, but not 
in accordance with light. Accommodation means that your pupils accommodate in size to, to uh, look at various distances. So an object that is in the distance, if you, if your person, you ask your person to um, focus on a distant object, their pupils should dilate. If you ask them to focus on a closer object, their pupils should constrict. This is not as dramatic a response as you get from a light reflex, but it is an a, um, important one to note. We, all, we are often called on, especially during neuro, neuro checks as nurses, to document that someone has uh, equal round and reactive to light and accommodation pupils, but most of us don't know what accommodation really is. So if we're going to chart it, we need to make sure that we understand what it is and that we're actually checking for it. At this point, you're, you will want you will want to begin your uh, inspection of the fundus. The fundus is a, an analogous term to the retina, so retina and fundus are used interchangeably here. You need to do this in a darkened room. You can't do it in a light room. It will not work. You need to remove your glasses, and if the patient is wearing glasses, then you need to remove them also. And you locate the fundus using an ophthalmoscope. Once you have uh, located the fundus, you look for the optic disc, which is a creamy uh, yellow-orange structure. You observe the retinal vessels. There's, there are five vessels, and they should fan out from a central uh, place where the optic nerve and the vessels all enter the retina at the back of the eye through the optic disc. You should observe the general background, which should be a light red to a, uh, a light brown color. And then you would observe the macule, which is located laterally to the optic disc and is a little brown structure that is the area of central vision. In order to be successful in locating the fundus, what you need to do is first locate the red reflex. This is a, a slide that shows the red reflex. Basically, red reflex is those red eyes you get when you take pictures. What happens with the red eye in a picture is the person is looking at the flash at the time it happens, so you get a reflection of the retina coming through the pupil onto your photograph. We want to use this uh, reflex uh, to help us find the correct um, location for the uh, ophthalmoscope. Using an ophthalmoscope takes a lot of practice, and you're, you will probably be very uncomfortable with it the first oh, 10, 15, 20,000 times that you use it because it does take a lot of practice. It's also very easy to lose your point of reference. So what you want to do is you want to, in a darkened room, um, stand about 18 inches away from the patient um, with the ophthalmoscope up to your eye and you want to sh shine that light on the patient's eye, elicit the red reflex. Once you've found the red reflex, you know you're in the right area because the red reflex is the retina. You follow that in and use the focusing mechanism on the ophthalmoscope to focus in so that you get a clear picture. Once you're inside the uh, once, you, you're, once you're inside the uh, pupil and looking at the back of the of the retina, you, your forehead will almost be touching your patient's forehead. If you're any farther away from that, then you're not seeing it correctly. And you'll need to move your ophthalmoscope around in order to see the entire retina. 
textbooks and examples that you see in um, uh, on online and, and in the videos show the retina as one large structure. However, that's kind of misleading for our purposes because you won't be able to see the entire retina all at one time. This slide is a picture, um, actually it's my mother's um, retinas. She was excited um, that she got a picture of her retinas and gave these to me to use in class. So this is her. And she, uh, th these were taken at the ophthalmologist using a, a special device that will take pictures of the entire retina. What you will see when you look into uh, the retina is you will just see a small portion of this and you'll need to manipulate the ophthalmoscope around uh, in order to find, to see this entire background. But what you can see here on this picture is that in the center you see the creamy yellow um, optic disc and you see the vessels that are fanning out from that entry point. The optic disc is where the vessels and the optic nerve enter from the back of the eye. So you see the um, the disc fan out. Uh, you'll notice that off to the uh, to laterally, to nasally laterally, in other words going toward the nose on these, you'll see there is a brown spot uh, in there, that's the macula. The very middle of the macula is called the centrius fovalis, and that uh, is the area of greatest um, of greatest central vision. When somebody has macular degeneration, that's what de degenerates, and they end up not being able to see the center of their visual fields, only the periphery. Um, you'll notice that the general background here is a uh, yellowish, orangish. Um, hers are actually a little bit pale. Some folks are uh, more orange, more red, and again, in a darker-skinned individual, they may tend toward a reddish-brown. Um, but these are this is the general color that you should see. You should see no hemorrhages. You should see no uh, sclerosing of the vessels. You should see a um, five main vessels coming in through the uh, optic uh, optic disc and no more. If there are more vessels present than what you see here, they may have retinopathy, which is something to be uh, uh, to uh, be, to be investigated. Some age-specific considerations for infants. Um, they may have an absent uh, uh, pupil response until after about, uh, until uh, the first few days uh, of life. However, if they continue to have one after three weeks, it may indicate that they have, uh, uh, that they have some blindness issues that need to be addressed. Strabismus is crossed eyes that can lead to permanent damage if it's not treated. So most uh, infants who are born with strabismus have that surgically corrected. Um, before um, before the age of one. Um, they may have a epicanthial fold, which is a fold of skin. It's an excess skin fold that extends over the inner corner of the eye. It may disappear later, or it may uh, continue. And they may also have something called a mongoloid slant, which is uh, seen in Down syndrome. It is a, a characteristic um, formation of the eye that is associated with Down syndrome. And again, the elderly may have that arcosinillus that we talked about earlier. They may have sparse eyebrows as a result of um, normal uh, changes that happen with aging, and uh, uh, the hair follicles tend to um, 
diminish. They may have a droopy lower lid related to decreased skin elasticity in the eyelids. Their eyes may look a little sunken because they have decreased orbital fat. They may have decreased tear production. Many older uh, individuals uh, complain of dry eye and they need um, to use eye drops frequently in order to uh, deal with the discomfort of their eyes becoming dry. So that may be a um, complaint that you might find in an older person. They may have these yellow nodules on the sclera and they may have these soft raised plaques of the tear ducts or these drusen which are yellow spots on the retina. Our practice exam question for the eye, you're conducting Joe's pre-employment eye exam. Joe can read line 2040 while squinting and 2050 without squinting. How should you record Joe's visual acuity? Is he 2040? Is he 2090? Is he 2050? Or is he none of the above? He's actually 2050 because he shouldn't be allowed to squint or to lean when he takes uh, when you're taking his his uh, Snellen chart uh, assessment. So the a correct reading is the one where he the, where he can read the line without squinting and without leaning in. Next we have our ear assessment. First slide shows a a, pic, a, a pict uh, pictorial of the uh, internal ear structures. Uh, one thing I want to uh, note to you here is to remember that there are actually three um, sections of the ear. There's the outer ear, the uh, middle ear, and the inner ear. Many folks get mixed up and think the middle ear and the inner ear are the same thing, and they're two very different structures with two very different um, um, functions. The outer ear is often called the ear canal. The inner ear is the, I'm sorry, the middle ear is the portion of the ear that's um, between the eardrum or the tympanic membrane and the um, round, uh, the round window which leads into the inner ear. The uh, middle ear is connected to the pharynx with the eustachian tube and it's the middle ear that is at issue when you're dealing with otitis media or ear infections. If someone has swimmer ear, swimmer's ear or otitis externa, that would be the ear canal or the outer ear. The cochlea, um, which are the uh, which have the semilunar um, canals, are in is in the inner ear, and that's where the um, hearing, uh, the actual neurological function of hearing, is taking place. Although the the other structures of the ear are aiding in that process. First you want to inspect and palpate the external ear. You want to note its shape and size. You want to note that both ears are the same shape and the same size. Um, you want to note the skin condition. Check to see if there's any crusting, uh, especially around the external ear canal, which might indicate that there is drainage in the ear canal uh, and infection. Check for tenderness. Also check for um, the external meatus. Is uh, again otitis externa is an infection of the ear canal. They may have a sticky yellow discharge. Otitis media is an infection of the middle ear, which you won't be able to uh, note uh, unless you use unless you're using the otoscope. However, if the uh, infection has progressed to the point where the middle ear is not able to contain the amount of uh, purulent drainage, it may uh, 
rupture the tympanic membrane and cause a gush of yellow fluid to come out of the uh, ear and end up in the external ear canal. You want to test their hearing acuity. You want to do a whisper test um, to detect any uh, high tone hearing loss. You stand behind the patient, um, reach over them to uh, close the trachea, which is the little ear flap, little skin flap and cartilage flap above the ear canal on the opposite side, and whisper usually one, two, three, or some simple phrase. They should be able to repeat that to you. Your book talks about using a um, watch test. Unfortunately, um, most modern watches don't tick. And so trying to test hearing acuity with a ticking watch becomes uh, very difficult uh, unless you have an antique pocket watch, um, which I wouldn't suggest um, you bring a valuable antique uh, in, uh, um, into a, a clinical setting unless you can be sure of its safety. So um, while a ticking watch is a good way to check hearing acuity, it's not always possible nowadays. Um, we do check hearing acuity, though, also using the, the uh, using a tuning fork. And there's two different tests that you do with the tuning fork. One's the Weber, the other's the Rhine. The Weber test is a uh, is is tests for lateralization. In other words, it tests to see if you if the person can hear equally well in both ears. So you set the tuning fork vibrating. You can st um, strike it on your hand or on an uh, an object and then place it on top of the head and ask the patient if they can hear the sound equally well in both ears. If they can, then they have no lateralization with the Weber and uh, your test is complete and you don't, you can stop the tuning fork from ringing. The Rhine test is testing air conduction bo versus bone conduction. So with the Rhine test, what you do is you set the tuning fork vibrating and you place the mastoid, you place the tuning fork stem on the mastoid process. Um, you move and you um, ask them if they can hear the the sound. If they say that they can, you ask them to say when you don't hear it anymore. Let me know. When they don't hear it anymore, you move the teeth of the tuning fork up to their external ear canal, and they should still they should be able to hear it. So you'll ask them, do you hear it now? And if they do, ask them to tell you when they don't hear it anymore. Air conduction should be twice as long, roughly twice as long as bone conduction. You don't have to time it strictly, but it should be roughly twice as long as air conduction. Uh, air conduction should be twice as long as bone conduction. Uh, students often have trouble, um, uh, they often mix up the Weber and the Rhine test. Um, I use a little technique to help me remember that the Weber test um, is on the you pl is placing the tuning fork on the top of the head because I picture the W in Weber like a crown and a crown sits on the top of your head. It's silly but it does help. Here are some photos that show the Weber and the Rhine being um, conducted. Uh, the first slide is the Weber test where we have struck the tuning fork and placed it on top of the top of the head to check for lateralization. We ask the patient, can you hear it equally well in both ears? And if they can, then there is no lateralization. This is checking air conduction in both ears, but we're checking for lateralization um, and uh, through, through the Weber test. You note that 
the way they're holding the tuning fork, they're only holding it by the stem. If you hold a tuning fork any place other than the stem, you'll stop it from vibrating. So be sure that uh, if the person says they can't hear anything, that you are actually holding the tuning fork correctly. The second slide in the middle is the first portion of the Rhine test, where we've set the tuning fork vibrating and placed it on the mastoid process. She, she can hear it, so she, she's going to tell us when she can't hear it any longer. When she can't, we move the tuning fork into the position that you see on the third photograph, which is placing the vibrating uh, tines of the tuning fork up to the external ear and asking them to, uh, if they can hear it, to tell us when they don't hear it anymore. Instances where they, uh, there may be an abnormality in either the Weber and the rhinus where someone has a, uh, has a known deafness, either bone conduction or um, neurological deafness. Also when someone has a uh, otitis media uh, or any other kind of uh, ear infection, there may be an issue with hearing on one side versus the other. So, um, after you've tested the external structures and the hearing acuity, you want to do the otoscopic exam. Um, the otoscope, we use the same handle that we use for the ophthalmoscope, which is trade out the top, put the um, otoscope on it. Be sure that you always have a plastic, um, a, a plastic um, cover on the otoscope. Never use the metal. Um, bare. It, you'd always have for sanitary reasons to use the plastic uh, on top. You need to use the largest speculum that will fit inside the ear. You tilt the head away from you toward their opposite shoulder and for an adult you pull the pinna, which is the ear, uh, up and to the uh, up, up into the into to the back in order to straighten out the ear canal. For a child you would pull it down. You hold the scope upside down. You put the handle in your hand upside down this is important because it straightens out the angle on the um, otoscope and insert it into the external canal. You don't in insert it all the way. You insert it enough so that you can see and then you, if you need to you can slowly advance it. it. This is not a painful procedure for a person however it is uncomfortable for some people and some people's ear canals are more sensitive than others. Sometimes uh, some folks are um, prompted to cough whenever anything is placed into the ear canal, so um, which is a physiological way of clearing the ear canal. So um, be gentle as you're, in, as you're introducing the um, speculum. When you're looking into the, inside, into the ear, you want to note in the external ear canal, um, the sides of the ear canal, they should be pink, not red. You should note if there's any swelling, any discharge, any tenderness, any blood if there's a ruptured tympanic membrane, or if you see anything that might be cerebrospinal fluid in the ear. If you do see anything that might be cerebrospinal fluid, um, you may want to discontinue the exam until that, um, until that uh, issue has been um, checked out by a, uh, by a primary health care provider. You should locate the tympanic membrane. It should be pearly gray in color. There are two structures that I would like for you to um, practice finding on the tympanic membrane. The first is called the cone of light. The cone of light is simply a reflection of the light you're shining down the ear canal coming back at you off the tympanic membrane. 
It will be located at either 4 or 7, seven o'clock uh, on the tympanic membrane, if you look at it as though it were a clock face, depending on which ear you're in. So it'll be either 4 or 7, and it is cone-shaped, <coughs> simply a wedge of light that is reflected back toward you. The other is the attachment of the malleus. Um, the malleus is the, uh, uh, the bone on the opposite side of the tympanic membrane. Um, it's actually in the middle ear, and you will be looking through the tympanic membrane in order to see the malleus. You want to look for the attachment, and it should be attached at about 12 o'clock and it will just be a small bone that you'll see. If either, if you cannot find either of these structures, it may indicate that the tympanic membrane is not flat. If the tympanic membrane is either bulged, which is you know, being pushed out or retracted, being sucked in, can indicate that there are uh, injuries or uh, infection um, going or fluid retention going on in the middle ear, any of which are um, abnormal findings. This slide shows a picture of the tympanic membrane. This is a drawing. Uh, everybody's tympanic membrane is going to look a little bit different, but this is a, uh, a, a pretty average one. You see we've got the cone of light down at, at uh, 4 o'clock here, and we've got the attachment of the malleus up at about uh, 12 o'clock on our uh, tympanic membrane. It is a generalized pearly gray color, translucent, meaning that we can see through it. This is a little cartoon slide that shows you um, the symptoms of otitis media. Ear infections are relatively common in uh, young children and in older folks too now that uh, uh, allergies and uh, f uh, cold and flu season uh, are upon us. And so um, it's important to know the, sign the signs and symptoms of otitis media. Uh, the reason there are uh, so prevalent in young children is number one, young children don't have an intact immune system until they're about four or five years old. Number um, two, they also, until they uh, grow anatomically larger, their ear canals, um, I'm sorry, their middle ear um, that is that is connected to the back of the pharynx with the eustachian tube is, is uh, more susceptible to uh, back flushes of bacteria from the pharynx. Um, the eustachian tube is much straighter and shorter in a child than it is in an adult, and so it's much easier for bacteria from the pharynx to make their way up the eustachian tube into the middle ear and cause um, a middle ear infection or otitis media. So young kids, you often see them pulling at their ears. Um, they may have, they may run a fever. They may. Um, uh, cry, they may be listless, um, they, uh, and if the, the, a bulging, um, a bulging eardrum, a bulging tympanic membrane is reasonably painful. What generally happens is that, um, the eustachian, the lining of the eustachian tube is a mucous membrane, just like the mucous membranes in the nose or, or the, or the ear. And so if there's an allergy or an infection going on, those mucous membranes become inflamed. And because the eustachian tube is a small diameter tube, it will become uh, blocked. And fluid that would normally drain out of the middle ear into the back of the pharynx is cannot. 
and um, if there is bacteria up there and it starts multiplying and causing an infection, that means there's a limited amount of space in the middle ear for the multiplication of those bacteria. And at some point, the only thing it can do is push the tympanic membrane out. At some point, the tympanic membrane um, will rupture and will allow this rush of, of purulent drainage to come out of the ear, at which point the pain is uh, relieved uh, and uh, the patient, uh, the child, or the adult will, you know, no longer complain of pain. Um, however, they still may run a fever and have all the other symptoms of otitis media. The tympanic membrane uh, generally will heal itself, and there's usually, other than than um, other than observation, there really isn't in supportive care. There isn't much done to heal the tympanic membrane. However, the tympanic membrane may be scarred after this uh, as it as it heals. Um, so we want to be sure, though, not to put any eardrops or any instruments into an ear that has a ruptured tympanic membrane. And again, these are uh, some uh, photographs, some some drawings of. Um, the middle ear and what happens in uh, otitis media and otitis externa. In the elderly, you may experience uh, hearing loss. High tone hearing loss is common uh, in uh, older folks, especially those who may have worked at a, a noisy job before the occupational restraint, the, the occupational um, safeguards for hearing were, were in place. So uh, for mill workers or folks who worked in factories or may have had a, a noisy hobby such as um, you know working on engines in the garage and so forth, um, may have experiences high tone hearing loss. What happens with high tone hearing loss is the person can hear you, they just have trouble hearing higher pitches so they don't understand what you're saying. Um, so, for example, vowels like A, E, O, and U have a lower pitch than consonants like T, S, C, or D. So that small amount of pitch difference between those two can make it very difficult for uh, them to hear the consonants. So they'll just hear instead of an actual word, and they will accuse you of mumbling. Um, there are hearing aids that can help with this, however, it is difficult sometimes for um, to, to get uh, elderly to recognize that there's an, an issue. Um, also, they may have uh, more hair in their ears, as they, which is a normal finding with aging, and they may have uh, more cerumen, mostly because the cerumen, which is the earwax, gets drier and it's harder for the body to expel it naturally. One thing to keep in mind is that a lot of older people who complain of having um, you know, earwax, sometimes the, what they're really feeling is they're feeling fluid in the middle ear as the result of you know, a eustachian tube being blocked, but they interpret it as being, um, as it's being um, earwax. So whenever you hear somebody complain about earwax, we need to be sure exactly what the complaint is that they have there in that ear. We need to do a full otoscopic exam. So our practice exam question. Mr. Jones across the street knows you're a nurse and wants you to remove some earwax, which has been troubling him. He tells you his ear is sore and draining a yellow liquid, and he tries to get the wax out with a Q-tip but was unable. He feels sure that if the wax would come out, he'd feel better. 
you should A, refer him to a doctor. He probably has an ear infection. Um, B, rinse his ear out with peroxide and water. C, tell him to get an ear syringe kit from Walgreens. Or D, tell him to try harder with the, the Q-tip. And the correct answer is obviously A. Um, that pain and discharge indicates that he has an infection, not earwax, and that needs to be looked at. Now, I should probably change the slide to say a primary health care provider, not a doctor. So, so you don't have to be a doctor in order to investigate this. Um, and the uh, other options that I have listed here may result in injury, and we certainly don't want to cause any more injury to this particular patient. Um, at the end of uh, today's lectures, I would encourage you to, during your next visit to the lab, to check out a ophthalmoscope and otoscope that you can use at home, um, or if you have one at work, to take advantage of it. Practice the ophthalmoscope and otoscope with as many people as you can, family members, co-workers, patients, um, to get as much practice as you can. Um, these take a lot of time and a lot of effort to feel comfortable with, but they're very good skills to have, especially if you're concerned about um, about uh, these issues in your patients. Um, even in ICU, we, patients have ear infections all the time that go undiagnosed because nobody ever looked in their ears. So these are very important skills to have and to practice. So I will be posting this um, on the slide uh, cast and also as a podcast. So if you have any questions about any of the material that was listed here, you can certainly contact me and you can subscribe to the podcasts by uh, clicking on the either MyTunes or Yahoo Music or whatever aggregator you use um, in the on the podcast uh, website. So uh, I'll look forward to hearing from you if there's any issues.